evening and welcome to Be the Gift Connections. I'm Dawn Benjamin with Tennessee Donor Services. August is National Minority Donor Awareness Month, and this is the second in a series of programs that we're doing to explore health care inequities that exist in our communities of color and how this impacts attitudes toward organ and tissue donation. Tonight, we'll be talking with two longtime physicians. Uh, about the challenges facing the black community when it comes to health care. We'll also be talking with a double, double lung recipient, a kidney recipient, and a donor family member who will share their personal stories in addition to giving their thoughts on how we can better reach our minority population. Let me first introduce our guests. Dr. Willie May Hubbard is a pediatrician in Chattanooga and is also a liver recipient. We have Dr. Cornelius Mance, who also joins us from Chattanooga. He is a neurologist. Africa Humphrey is a donor family member. Her brother passed away unexpectedly and was able to be a donor hero. Africa is also in Chattanooga. And we're pleased to have Lynn Moore, who is in Laverne, Tennessee. She's a double lung recipient, and she received the gift of life in 2016. Now, we also um, had Anthony Spears, who's a very recent kidney recipient. He was going to be on. He's located in Alpharetta, Georgia, and received his transplant in Tennessee. Um, he's had a conflict. We're hoping that he'll be able to join us a little bit later on in the program. So Black Americans make up the largest group among people of color in the U.S. who are in need of a life-saving transplant. So we'll be focusing primarily on this group this evening. Before we get started with our discussion, I wanted to look at some of the statistics that we have related to our multicultural communities, the need for transplants, and the rate of donation. These numbers give us a look at last year's donation and transplantation rates, along with a breakdown of current need based on ethnicity. So here we see nationally over 105,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving transplant. Nearly 60% of our transplant waiting list are from multicultural communities. And there we see nationally that 28% are African-Americans. And then when we take a look at the numbers in Tennessee, more than 3,000 people are waiting for a life-saving transplant. 53% of Tennesseans who are waiting are also from multicultural communities. And there we see that 46% of those waiting are African-American. And then we have some other statistics um, where we see that more than 41,000 organ transplants from over 20,000 donors brought new life to patients and their families last year. More than 85,000 people received the gift of sight through a cornea transplant, and more than 2.5 million people receive a tissue transplant each year to restore uh, mobility. Um, we never know what we might be able to give, uh, we see by the numbers also that every nine minutes, unfortunately, another patient is added to the waiting list and that 17 people die every day who are waiting, not because an organ match, I mean, an organ um, is not available, but an organ cannot be found. And then we see by the numbers uh, that one person could help over 75 people when we consider both organs and tissues that can be donated. And this is uh, some striking statistics that just really give us an idea of how 
um, crucial our uh, need for organs is when we take a look at kidneys, 85% of the list are people who are just waiting on a kidney and the average wait time is three to five years but some wait even more. So it is um, a health crisis in the United States. We, when we consider the number of people who are in need of a life-saving transplant. So we're going to first talk with Dr. Hubbard and Dr. Mance. Um, <clears throat> let's first talk about healthcare in general for our multicultural population. Mistrust and in some cases fear, unfortunately, of our health system still exists today. It's historically rooted, isn't it? It definitely is. And Dr. Matz and I was having just a brief conversation even before uh, this uh, uh, presentation. Um, there is a deep mistrust because of things that have been done and people are aware of it. And whenever negative things happen, that is a, a, a situation that's really emphasized. There are very few people who don't recall or know something or haven't heard about the Tuskegee study. This was a study where uh, black males were allowed to live throughout syphilis, the course of syphilis, when known antibiotics were available for treatment. This is something that was devastating. It's a very dark history that we have to live with here in the United States. And people remember that. Uh, they understand that some of us are more dispensable than others. And therefore, there is a lot of mistrust. When we try to encourage people or make them aware of things such as uh, uh, transplants, a lot of them are hesitant. They're hesitant about listening to it, donating, and even receiving those organs. But it is deep-rooted. It is uh, embedded in the minds of many that um, these are experiments, these are uh, procedures that people want me to use my body or, 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 or to figure out how it should be. So that is one of the things that we definitely see. Um, one of the things too, we also talk about uh, biases or not knowing certain things that can be the provider as well as the patient mm -hmm. and many times if a person experienced low quality health care they are very suspicious mm -hmm. and this kind of uh transcend economics and education mm -hmm. and what happens as we were talking before if you have one bad experience it take 15 good experiences for you to be able to trust the system mm -hmm. and basically what has happened today is that we have people who basically have put in a position of knowing, but they are spotting off myths and misinformation as though it's the truth. They don't trust science. So I think one of the things that happened to us right now is that we are in a, in a time that we need to step back and begin to really look at the science behind things. If you go back to Copernicus and Aristotle, when they said the earth was round versus flat, they began to attack the people who were saying it was round. And that's what we are seeing now with respect to healthcare is that there is so much distrust in the system. And part of it may be related to our own biases, whether it's a provider or the 
patient, but also another thing too, people have a tendency, used to be, is that what the Bible says was basically God. Now people question it because of so much information out there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Those are excellent points. So we see uh, disparities in all aspects of healthcare, um, and I'd like to talk about three of those: the preventative, acute, and end of life. Uh, could you give us some examples of the inequities you see in each of these areas? And Dr. Mance, if you want to start preventative, what are what are we lacking here? Well, I think preventive is that most people don't realize is that. The SAD diet, the standard American diet, is based is a diet of high information and it causes it is the roadmark for lots of diseases. And what happens is that you have Taco Bell and pizzas and every place else, the McDonald's on every corner, and people just flock to that because of they think it's low cost. When they will not change and eat nutritious diet because they say eating organic or eating high quality food is too expensive. Right. When in reality, it causes more to eat the low quality food is sick. And I think that's one of the things that people just don't understand. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hubbard, would you have another example? Well, uh, the, the problem with uh, preventive is we have become a society where we want things to happen immediately. We're not willing to work towards long-term goals or to uh, understand that so many things can be prevented if we start doing things early enough and we repeat, repeatedly do those good things. I see uh, in my practice a lot when I take care of an acute problem and I encourage people to come back to follow up so that we can talk about ways of not allowing this to happen or maybe ways of preventing this from happening again so that we don't develop really uh, serious conditions. That's just not valued mm -hmm. as much as it should be. So all in all, I think we are a society we've changed to the point that we want immediate results and we're just not willing to be patient enough to work on the long-term goals because i will say uh health has changed a whole lot a lot is made available transportation has improved significantly for those who in the past didn't have a route to the system but we still haven't educated the community and the population to the point where preventive medicine should rank above all else. And it's very expensive to do acute medicine, mm -hmm. but preventive medicine is less costly again, and the long-term effects are definitely superior. We can prevent so many things by taking the steps early, following them, and being disciplined enough to uh, do the preventive measures. So but, but also the thing too is that uh, the ability to navigate the system. Mm. Many times people have a hard time get knowing what to do, how to do, or they talk to people and they get runarounds. Yeah. Uh, and what happens is that people who are in their position need to be adequate 
trained to be able to give people good information. Because mm -hmm. what happens is that many people uh, who have no insurance, they have no clue of, of avenues where they could get results, get, get support and mm -hmm. care. So those mm -hmm. things need to be uh, more readily and taught in the community. But also, many people are afraid to get that proper diagnosis yeah. because they don't want to change their life or they mm -hmm. fear certain problems. Women have less problems than men. Men have a tendency to put off, but women have a tendency to go to the doctor earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so um, could you each give an example of maybe a disparity that you see specifically in acute care, maybe a condition? Well, I think studies have shown and that people of the same ethnic group identify more with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, and this is mistrust, sometimes uh, in acute care, particularly depending upon the problem, people are not necessarily received very well. And a lot of time isn't spent towards changing the behavior. And you always have to do that if you're treating an acute problem. Mm. And if I'm seeing you and you don't need to be there anyway, and I can identify with your complaint or you in general, I'm not going to necessarily be as in, uh, attentive. And a lot of people understand that. So you have a lot of people who won't go and have uh, certain kinds of things done because they don't feel comfortable with how they are received. And sometimes it's appropriate that they not be in certain situations, but I think, again, it's going back to that mistrust. And one of the ways we could probably solve that, and I know we had started this in Tennessee, but it didn't last, is really establishing a medical home and in, and emphasizing the importance of everything being done there. And if such, some things happen when the office is closed, having any urgent care versus an emergency room, mm -hmm. having a medical home so that when you go for acute medical problems, you appreciate your provider, you have something in common with that provider, and then you can move along the path of prevention. Mm -hmm. That I think is very important. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mance, what would be an example of a disparity when we're talking about end-of-life care? Well, I think one of the disparities you have by end-of-life care is probably economics. I see a lot of people who have end-of-life care, they do not have long-term care. They know I do not have the insurance or the money that is needed because if someone comes to take care of you, there have to be resources. Yeah. And what you find out is that people don't realize that if you're a husband and wife, 95% you will need long-term care to support you if you get sick. And if mm -hmm. you're single, 85% of the people probably will need long-term care. So the inner, inner life can be very uh, devastating mm -hmm. to those who survive, but mm -hmm. also the amount of money they require to maintain six months or a year or two or three years it can cause devastation in, in uh, 
in, in your overall ability to survive. Now, I think what happened to us, we're living in a place that we need better, like a proper universal care. Uh, and I would talk to someone today, they were saying, well, it's, they're paying taxes like taxes on taxes. I said, what happens is that if you think about uh, in a life care, Medicare, 80% of the dollars of Medicare is spent in the last years of life. And many mm-hmm. times that is hundreds of dollars. So yeah. people don't have it. And so what happens is that they're not prepared for that. And so if you're not prepared for it, in the hospital, you get the care, but you can't be in the hospital no more than two. Some people may be longer, but once you leave there, these people require resources. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things that life takes long care. Most people don't have family members who can take off right. and be there. There are some families have loved ones that can come and take care of mom and dad, and they continue on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people don't. They have jobs to go to. Mm-hmm. So that that is very unfortunate. Right. So reports show that there are inequities when it comes to people of color getting a transplant. What are some of these? Well, um, one of the things that um, I think happens is because we're not educated on transplant, and Don, you know we have attended several meetings and you have very uh, poor participation. People don't appreciate it and they don't advocate for their families and loved ones. And I will be honest, some of it, I, I had a particular instance where this family was not offered that and and they didn't know anything about it or did not know that it was uh, a, a possibility. So again, it depends upon the provider leading someone along that path, particularly if they're not well-versed on how the quality of life can be improved so much if they were to receive a transplant. And again, I think it's very important for preventive care, establishing providers that you're comfortable with and that you can identify with so that if certain things were to happen to you, that would be one of the things that they would say you need to have. And I fortunately was in a great situation because when I had my liver issues, I knew that this was not a curable condition, but I had a very uh, uh, supportive physician who just walked me through the process and said, you know, it's going to happen, but when the time comes, I will be there. And he was a true advocate for me. So you have to have those relationships. And unfortunately, a lot of people do not. And again, is how do the how does the provider identify with the patients? There has to be a positive relationship, and sometimes that can cause inequities in care, particularly if you don't have um, a good provider-patient mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And the thing Man. is, it goes it goes both directions. I'm sorry. It goes both directions. The provider have a good relationship with the patient. And if the patient has a good relationship with the provider, Absolutely. and if they have, if they're able to communicate, mm-hmm. but also another thing happened too is that many of uh, patients were wrong for so many years, and family member has enabled them. And at the end, mm-hmm. what happened is that 
they feel guilty and they have great problem with respect to relating to to the provider and the provider probably to the family and now you got a conflict problem that no one is happy mm-hmm. and so i think what happened to us you have to remember that communication is one of the most important part of getting people to adhere to things they need to do and many people who have end-stage diseases will not stop smoking and drinking and doing the things that they have got them there and many times the provider uh, don't feel right with respect to being supported. Like Dr. Hubbard, she was willing to do everything mm-hmm. the provider talked about because she understood the proper way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So you try to educate people. That's one of the things with doctors. Education. We are to teach people, not to just tell people. Mm-hmm. Help them to understand what they're going through so they can inform decision for their health, but also to be able to pass it on. So like in this case, respect to live with transplants. If you understand it, then you can communicate with others who basically have no clue. And you never know who you come in contact with because the person you think is not listening, they're seeing you walk and walk, talking mm-hmm. things, talking about things that bless their life. And you're amazed how that one person can impact many others. Right. Uh, you know, just from this short conversation with the two of you, we see uh, that uh, our challenges are many when it comes uh, to the healthcare system overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, of course, how that uh, relates to donation and transplantation. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hubbard and Dr. Mance. Uh, they're going to be rejoining us later in the program. Right now, we're going to be taking a quick break. And when we return, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, a donor family member and a recipient. Stay with us. had acute liver failure. To this day, they can't figure out why it failed. One week he was fine, the next week we were in the hospital waiting for a transplant. He's here because of his donor. There's nothing that he can't do. There's no future that's not open to him. We owe it all to the donor family. What an amazing kid he is. We are back with Africa Humphrey and Lynn Moore. They're going to be relating their experiences in the hopes of bringing more awareness and influencing others to register to be donors. I want to thank you both for being here. Um, Africa, I'd like to start with you. Um, Describe your brother Dale to us. My brother Dale, um, he was a very happy-go-lucky person. Um, He was the life of the party. Um, his friends would describe him, I guess, you know, as a confidant, anyone, you could talk to him about anything. He would hold your secrets. They wouldn't go any further than the conversation you had with him. He was a grill master, great on the grill. We all miss his wings and his ribs. And um, he was very heavily into music. Now tell us what happened to Dale. 
So um, one morning um, at, at the time that this happened, Dale was living with my husband and I in Virginia, right outside of DC. And um, he and my husband worked together the same, um, same job. And uh, Dale liked to walk to work because, you know, he didn't like to drink coffee. And so the air would wake him up in the morning. And um, he told me as he went out the door, he's like, okay, I'll see you later. Uh, well, I asked him if he wanted a ride to work. He said, no, I'm going to stroll like he was going to walk. So he was walking to work, walking on the sidewalk. Um, a drunk driver jumped the curb or the, the sidewalk and hit him. And um, he... Uh, you know, made it to the hospital, but um, unfortunately, you know, didn't didn't survive. Uh, pass, I think, uh, he passed away the next day. Mm-hmm. No, that was devastating uh, for you and your family. What made you and your family decide to let him be an organ donor? Um, you know, my brother. You know, during his time here on Earth, he would do anything for anybody, whether he knew you or not. He would give you his last. And, um, you know, so I just remember when my brother, um, you know, met this homeless family and he didn't know them from anyone else and uh, they needed food and a place to stay. And he reached in his pocket and gave them everything he had um, so that they could have dinner in a hotel that night. So we knew that, you know, my brother would be willing to help anyone that he could. So we, uh, we knew that we could do that through organ donation. Now, prior to this, had you ever thought about organ donation um, and had you ever signed up? No. Um, and it's, you know, I, I used to work as a, as a nurse in the hospital. And um, so, you know, I would, I would, you know, see this, these kind of, um, you know, see the people come in sometimes, but I never thought about actually signing up myself until this happened to my brother, mm-hmm. to our family. I think that's probably more common than we realize that we never think about being a donor or even being a recipient until we have that connection. Mm -hmm. Now, did you encounter any negativity from family or friends when they learned that Dell was a donor? No, um, the people who did have opinions, they were, um, you know, they were very excited um, about that as far as like, wow, Dale's still doing it. He's still taking care of people. That's Dale. Um, so they were very happy about uh, that decision. We didn't receive, no one said anything negative to us. Good. Um, now, what gifts was Dale able to donate? Um, both kidneys and his pancreas. Okay. And tell us about the letter that you received. We, uh, our family received a letter from one of the kidney recipients. Um, he was an older gentleman um, who was a grandparent, and he, you know, he talked about how he didn't have to go to um, dialysis any longer, and um, that he was able to spend time and play with his grandchildren. He was more physically active, and that he had just gotten his life back. He was very thankful. Yes, and that's wonderful. What a wonderful legacy um, Dale has left behind. And what would you like for his recipients to know about him if you had a chance to talk to them? Um, (laughs) If um, Dale would say, you know, hey, if I don't need it, you can have it. Mm. And he didn't need it. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I think that he would be be very happy to see the lives that they're leading now and and also happy that he was able to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Africa. I know that um, 
it's always uh, difficult to talk about it. It's got to be very emotional every time you speak about it. So we certainly appreciate you. Uh, now I want to uh, talk to Lynn. Uh, Lynn is a double lung recipient. Um, Lynn, what condition were you do excuse me, diagnosed with that caused you to need the lung transplant? I was um, diagnosed with um, IPF and it's called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis back in 2013. It was an unknown cause. Okay. And tell us about the process that you went through to actually get on the waiting list. It's not just a matter of going to the doctor and they put your name on the list, is it? No, it's not. Um, it's a very long process um, to do that. I mean, a lot of doctor appointments, a lot of testing, a lot of blood work, um, and a lot of um, different x-rays and everything. And just to see where your lung capacity is at, you would have to go through those testings to see you know, if you're even healthy enough, you know, to go through the transplant. Right. So can you describe um, how it was to wait as you kept getting sicker and sicker? Ooh, the wait was hard. I, I could definitely say that because you're getting sicker and sicker and you're seeing your body deteriorate before your eyes. Mm -hmm. And with me being as young as I was and having, you know, IPF, something that I didn't know anything about, it was hard. Um, but I had to have the, you know, the support of my family, friends. You have to have that to keep you going and to let you know that it is possible. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think that you couldn't last until the transplant was found? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I was, you know, hospitalized and couldn't come home. Mm -hmm. That is when it set in that I might not, you know, make it mm -hmm. or I might not get a transplant. But due to a donor, I was able to get that transplant. Mm -hmm. Now, what does receiving the gift of life mean to you today? Oh, it means everything. Mm -hmm. It means a second chance of living um, life, um, just being able to do the things that I couldn't do, mm -hmm. the things that, you know, put me where I couldn't, you know, do anything for myself, couldn't drive, couldn't have the energy to even look after my own kids. Mm -hmm. uh, what has the second chance allowed you to do? What are some of your favorite things now? Um, believe it or not, I love the outdoors and hiking. Mm -hmm. And me and my husband, we chase waterfalls and we go to different areas in Tennessee, you know, looking, you know, for waterfalls and just being able to um, be independent again. Mm -hmm. It's the main thing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lynn, for sharing with us. Uh, now, after the break, we're going to be talking with all of our guests again about organ and tissue donation misconceptions and how we can reach more people with the facts. We'll be back in a moment. I'm in the ministry. I pastor church in a small town called Batesville, Mississippi. I was diagnosed with a rare heart disease. The donor's family and the gift of that young man giving has given me my life back. Don't come up with the mindset that I'm going to take it with me. Because what you are taking, you can help someone else live on. What you give can save someone else's life. 
Now in 2021, more than 9,000 African-Americans received a transplant, while only around 2,500 were donors. Many times, the hesitancy to register to be an organ and tissue donor is because of the misconceptions that still exist surrounding this subject. We want to replace myth with fact, and our guests are going to help us do this. Um, each one is going uh, to take a question, um, and we're going to start with Africa. So Africa, it's important that we get the perspective from a donor family member. What would you say to those who are afraid that their registering as a donor will affect their patient care if they go to the hospital? Um, I would say that um, there's no need to be afraid. Um, the healthcare team is going to do everything they can um, to save your life. Um, your your organs, you know, donation is not even considered until you've been um, declared um, um, dead. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and in our situation, there were a lot of tests that were ran. Right. We did speak to the neurosurgeon and, um, you know, other conversations were had before a decision was, was made. And then later on, the um, organ, uh, the organization uh, came in to speak with us about transplant. Yes. Now, Lynn, what should people know who think that their financial or social status plays a role in whether or not they receive a transplant? Well, I don't think that plays a role as far as your social status or even if you're wealthy or a star or anything. A lot of people feel like you have to have the, a lot of money in order to become a transplant, but it's based on if you can find a match, a donor match, you know, based on your blood type and everything else. And I just want them to know that, you know, this is the second chance of life for you. So not to give up in, in this day and time, we do have programs and things that we can go to if we do need that financial help for medication, you know, after transplant, it is available. And Dr. Mance, what would you say to those who are concerned about their religion prohibiting donation and uh, the effects that it would have on funeral arrangements? Oh, I'd probably say uh, I, I always look back at uh, Paul and Saul is that when people have a sunstroke, respect God in their life they basically have a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem happening is that your religion should say, if I can be a blessing to someone, let me do it. Mm -hmm. And that would be the major factor that was would be my thought process. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Hubbard, you're in a unique position as both a doctor and a transplant recipient. How do you use that to encourage people to consider being a donor? I share my story. I tell people uh, the trials and tribulations, and I think you all have heard me say this over and over again. I was the picture of health. I want to emphasize to people that you never know when things like this can happen. It was so striking. All of my friends who knew that I would ultimately require a transplant was just shocked. And then I will say, after receiving that transplant, I was out from work for two years, and now it's been eight years. It really gave me a second chance at life. So this is something that you can give and provide to others. And you always have to consider, you never know when this 
can what happened to you or someone you really love. So share the gift. That's what I would emphasize. And I, I really want to end my statement with saying this. Studies have shown that if you receive a transplant from someone in the same ethnic group, then the likelihood of your transplant being successful is significantly increased. So we all need to participate in the process. We have a lot of, I mean, it's just amazing to see that 50% of the patients in this uh, transplant uh, uh, recipients or the plants, uh, the, the transplant, uh, 50% of the patients on the transplant list are black and we have so few that are donated, but we really need to understand that this can happen to any one of us. And if it does, we want it to be a successful process. So we all need to share in the process. Definitely. Uh -huh. Well, I want to give a big thank you um, to our guests for sharing their knowledge and their experiences with us. And I want to thank our viewers for joining us. Donation and transplantation continue to offer more people a second chance at life, but there's still work to be done to close the gap between the number on the waiting list and the rate of donation and transplantation when it comes to our multicultural communities. We hope our program tonight has been educational. You may have had misconceptions about organ and tissue donation and hesitant to register to be a donor. If we've changed your mind, we hope you'll take a few minutes to document your decision. Simply go to bethegifttoday.com to sign up and talk to your family about your wishes. Remember, we all have the power to donate life. Have a good evening. Mm -hmm.